Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites wait they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust 
Jesus, that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. Happiness is determined by circumstances. Joy is determined by the presence of God in our heart. Amen. Um, Just as a matter of uh, personal embarrassment, um, I love that song, Angels We Have Heard on High, but I can't sing it without thinking about when I was five years old, age of my uh, grandson Bear there. He... uh, uh, when I was five, I, I just remember singing in church, and my mom stood me on the, on the pew next to her, and I was singing that song to the top of my lungs, because I love that glory. And for me, it's still like, I want to start that, and all the way t- to the end of that without taking a breath, you know? And my mom trying to cover my mouth. <laughs> I think people paid her to, you know, just to bring me to church to sing that song to Christmas. Because I didn't sing well then, and it's no better now. But I still sing at the top of my voice. I love it. Uh, just, I'm older, my voice isn't as strong as it used to be. But anyway, um, you can be opening your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Also, uh, I'm just going to cover a little bit in Matthew. Um, by the way, there'll be a men's Bible study, a book we've been going through, The Masculine Mandate, tonight, today at 5 o'clock. So if you're a guy and you want to come back to that, that's, that's welcome. Uh, just, this is uh, an admission. All pastors are thieves. Everything we say or do, somebody else has already said it or done it, okay? We're the worst plagiarists in the world, but it's all because uh, there's nothing new under the sun, according to Solomon, and we don't mind if somebody steals from us as long as, you know, if, if something's really good, you ought to give somebody credit, but, but uh, uh, it was uh, Spurgeon, he said he had a student once that said, I'll be original or I'll be nothing, and soon he was both. Um, we, we, we have to depend on other people to get more information. But as I'm looking at Ruth today, she's in this genealogy that we're talking about out of Matthew 1. There are some women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 5 to be exact. And in verse 5, um, the Bible says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And so we're going to look at Ruth today. She is our character, so you can uh, stay there in the book of Ruth, um, and that will help you out. But I want you to know that my thoughts about this, a lot of, the, a lot of them, are based on this book. And when I got a single source like that, I like to especially give them credit. It's called Bethlehem's Redeemer, Seeing Jesus in Ruth by Daniel J. Palmer. He's the pastor of North Roanoke Baptist Church. He's one of our SBCB pastors. Um, just a great man of God. I got to hear him uh, speak recently, and this is what he was talking about. And uh, I'd already knew I was going to be doing this. I told him, I'm going to be talking about Ruth. He said, well, here, and he gave me an additional resource. He said, take this. And uh, he said, yeah, take it. Use everything I got. And so I, I appreciate uh, Dr. Palmer. He's a, a, a godly uh, man. And uh, so if you want to find this book, I don't know where you might find it. I always try Amazon. That's not a commercial, just a fact. Um, but if you can't find anywhere else, he's the pastor of North Roanoke Baptist Church. So you can look those, them up easily, and I'm sure they probably have a few there for sale. Um, I would hope so. But we're, we're in this book of Ruth today. And uh, as we look at it, we, we 
see Jesus in all of Scripture. We've said that so many times. And I want you to understand the book of Ruth is historically accurate. Uh, we have to understand a lot of things about the Bible when we're interpreting it. And that's one of the things. It's historically accurate. There are statements in here made by Satan. So we don't want to base our life on those. But the Bible's accurate when it tells us what Satan might have said or done. Uh, so you get what I'm saying there. But Ruth is a historically accurate person. All these events happen. But woven into what God did in Ruth's life is the story of Jesus coming and redeeming us. Ruth represents the church. Boaz represents Christ in the story. It's not one-to-one in every case, but we do see those things. I have one older sister. That's the only sibling I have is an older sister. Her name is Ruth. Now, we're from the South Carolina Deep South, so all girls have two names. Her middle name is Ellen, so growing up, she was Ruth Ellen to me, and I still... I tend to call her that, but now that she's <clears throat> old, um, she just goes by Ruth. But we don't think much about what that word means. Growing up with her, you know, I never thought about what her name might mean. I love the meanings of names. But I know all of you know the opposite of Ruth, Ruthless. When someone has no Ruth in them. Ruth means to be a friend, to be kind, to be... Uh, a, a nice person. And Ruth lived her life in such a way that her name becomes synonymous with being a wonderful person, to being a nice person. Someone who's ruthless has no kindness in them at all. And as we look at Ruth, we see that, and we, we see it in the first chapter. And, and the most scripture I'm going to read is going to be out of the first chapter, uh, even though I will keep referring back. But we're going to cover the whole book and this guy, Dr. Palmer, he preached this over four weeks. I'm doing it in one 30-minute segment. So, obviously, it's going to go, uh, I'm not going to go near as deep as he does. But, but we'll still catch it. And so, I, I want to read to you the first verse uh, to start this out. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons and the name of the man was Elimelech I'm going to stop right there I go into verse 2 um, we're going to be talking about joy and how we have joy in Christ how Ruth's life starts in despair and ends in joy so here's what I want you to take home with you today that true joy is found in the redemption of sinful men to a holy God notice that to a holy God we belong to him. Well, I read that first verse, and that first verse and that first phrase in, in verse 2 is packed with information. So I'm going to pull some of that out for you so you, so you get the context. Um, this is the days of the judges. There's no king yet. Ruth's going to be the great-grandmother uh, of, of the first king. but uh, Well, second king, but the first important one. Um, and in those days, there was a famine in the land. Now, so, I want you to get the context where uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech live. They've got two sons. And by the way, Naomi, who is the mother, mother-in-law in this story, she is a downer. I mean, like, if you want to be depressed, just read anything Naomi ever said. I mean, it's just not good. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a mother-in-law like that? Um, just, and that's Ruth's mother-in-law, by the way. You follow, the first service laughed at that joke. I'm so surprised y'all are shocked in the silence. But anyway, we, we find this family, and where are they living? Verse 1 tells us Bethlehem. 
The name Bethlehem, Beth is house in Hebrew. You, you kind of know that. Uh, Bethany, the house of God. Uh, Bethlehem is the house of bread. Okay? So the ending of Bethlehem is a Hebrew word, bread. Now think about that. It's the house of bread. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, right. This is going to be a little bit interactive because I feel like I've already lost So that he's born in Bethlehem, but who, what is one of the titles of Jesus? The bread of life, right? He's born in the house of bread. You follow me? But I, want, I said this starts in a sinful act because I want you to check what happens. They're living there in Bethlehem uh, in Judah, and he goes to Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Why? Because there was a famine in the land. Elimelech is the father he, of, of the two sons, one who marries Ruth, the husband of Naomi. And Elimelech means God is my king. So a man whose name God is my king gets hungry and doesn't trust his king to supply him the bread he needs and goes to enemy territory, Moab. You remember Moab? Moab is the son of Lot and his daughter. Okay? After God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, a bad thing happened and a baby is born and his name is Moab, become the Moabites. When God is taking the children of Israel out of Egypt and bringing them back to the promised land, as they're coming through, they go by Moab and the Moabite king hires Balaam to curse Israel. You follow me? This is found in Numbers. And... And Balaam said, I will only speak what God tells me to speak. I'm not going to curse them just to curse them. But if God tells me to, I will. And he goes with him because he, he wanted the money. Right? Always follow the money. Shekels bring shackles. But he said, I'm only, but he made the agreement. I'll talk, but I'm only going to do what God. So three times they get him up there to curse Israel. And three times he blesses them. I want you to understand in the midst of that, in Numbers, I think it's 24, but somewhere between 22 and 26, so 24 is in the middle. You can find if you want to look it up. In there, he talks about, I think it's in the third time he blesses them, that a star will arise out of Jacob, out of Judah. Do you remember what the wise men saw? And it brought them to the house of bread? Where Jesus was. In, in about 240 something AD. After the death of Christ. They found a painting. Of a man that represented Balaam. With his hand like this. And his fingers crooked up. And it points to a scene of Mary and the baby. With a star above it. So this prophecy goes back to numbers. The wise men were looking for that star to arise. And when it arose. They went to Bethlehem. Well. It all starts back here in Ruth and Boaz and David is going to come out of Bethlehem. That is, if you remember, that's why they had to go back to Bethlehem because they had to go back to their hometown and both of them being descendants of David had to go to the city of David, Bethlehem, to be taxed. You with me? Okay, that was a long setup, but that is just a setup for you to understand what's going to happen after this. So what happens, they go to Moab and Elimelech dies and Naomi has two sons, and they said, well, we're going to get married. And they get married, and, and we're not sure if they got married before or after Elimelech dies, but they marry Moabite women. 
Now, they're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to marry outside of Israel to start with, a, a Gentile. But secondly, these people are more or less enemies of Israel. Now, they're not like at war, but they were not nice to each other. They, they have an antagonistic relationship, and these two boys are going to marry them. And in the Mosaic Law, which has been written by now, you have to wait 10 generations of descendants from Ruth to even enter the temple. To come into the Jewish part of the temple. And yet her great grandson is the king. I love it when God goes, "Uh uh-huh, but watch this. (laughs) That's kind of what is happening. But in this story, Elimelech dies. They marry these two girls. And then both those boys die. And I told you Naomi's a downer. She named the boys like destruction and depression. I mean, I don't know what. It's like she's just a joy to be around. You know, it's the one that, oh, they came. I can't believe they're here. That, that, that woman. But we go down to verse 16, and she, she says, I'm getting out of here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You girls stay here, her daughter-in-laws. Y'all are young enough. Marry somebody else. Have a happy life. I'm out of here. And they both said, no, 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 no. We're going with you. So she said, please yourself. They, they're walking out. She gets to the place where, okay, I'm moving over. Y'all go back. She repeats it, and they say, no, we're going to stay. And she said, no, leave me. And Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, kisses her and walks away. But look down in verse 16. In 15, Naomi said, your sister-in-law has gone back. Why don't you go back and to her people and her gods? Why don't you return with your sister-in-law? But Ruth, verse 16, said, do not urge me. By the way, when Orpah kissed her, Ruth clung to her. She grabbed hold of her. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined... She didn't say anything else. This is Ruth's conversion, in a sense. This is her sinner's prayer, as we'd like to call it, where she says, I am forsaking the gods of Moab. I'm forsaking the Baal, the Baal. I am forsaking all of this stuff because I'm going to follow your God and your people. I believe in the God of Israel. Now, she'd been married to one of those sons who was Jewish, and I don't know if if he managed to teach her and all those things, but she has decided, I'm going to follow the God of Israel. And she comes out of Moab and moves into Bethlehem. So we call, I've called that a little town of Bethlehem. Well, the second point I want you to see is, O come all ye faithful. Look at the end of the verse of, of chapter one. So Naomi returns uh, uh, with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And in chapter 2 and uh, verse 1, Naomi has a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. Now, so Naomi knew about her. By the way, what I wanted you to see up in verse 19, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up uh, because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty said, God's against me. She, she still thinks God's against her and he's doing great things in her life. 
I don't know, how many of y'all have never been discouraged? Oh, good, no liars today. Praise the Lord. Yeah, we get discouraged, we forsake God. And she's, she's coming back to the land of promise. She's coming back to the people of promise. God's just, uh, even God hates me. You know, it's just so depressed. God's doing a great thing. You and I know that. Don't you want to reach into her life and go, Naomi, just hang on a minute. Look what God's going to do. But she doesn't get it. So they come back to Bethlehem and, and we're introduced to Boaz. We call this, oh, come all ye faithful. I want you to understand when Naomi gets there, she's worse off than she was in Moab. You got to understand the context of what's happening here because you know of the tradition and it's set in law and Mosaic law that if a man dies and he's got a wife and he hasn't had any children, that the closest relative to that man who is a male that can carry on his name has to take that woman as his wife and make sure they have children to remember the guy who died without any children. So that is what is in force, and that's what needs to happen with Naomi. But when Naomi said, yeah, y'all don't follow me, she goes, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. If I had a husband who's going to have a baby tonight, you're not going to wait around for him to grow up. So go back and go get your young man in Moab. And Ruth says, no. And Ruth goes with Naomi not having any promise or any idea that she is going to find a husband. Naomi has told us she can't have children. And even if she could, it's too late. And whoever redeems Naomi has to buy her care, has to buy everything. They have to promise to take care of her forever. And her worth back then would have been more in having a child than in anything else. And so they're not going to do that. And Ruth is Ruth. She's not an Israelite. So nobody is going to do that either. So you've got this impossible situation. In Moab, at least she had gotten some reputation there. And she's got two daughter-in-laws who are part of it. And obviously they stayed with her uh, up until this point. And so in Moab, she might have at least survived and had food. And maybe Ruth would have remarried. And that guy would have been nice to Naomi. But instead, she goes back. And when she gets there, she's worse off than when she left. But they learn about Boaz. And Naomi knows about Boaz. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read as much. I'm going to just kind of tell you the story. So Ruth goes to the field of Boaz and starts picking up grain that is dropped. So as they're harvesting the grain, you get it. Some of it will just fall off. Not the whole stalk, but just some seeds of grain, some wheat or barley or whatever. And it's barley harvest. So, so Ruth goes in the field. And a lot of women would do this. This is how they go get bread cheap, especially if you're poor. And, and in fact, it's commanding the law that if, if you're harvesting and the poor people need to pick up some food, let them have it. Don't worry about it. So Ruth's out there doing that. She's picking up the little grains that have fallen off and gathering them. Everybody knows who she is. Obviously, they didn't kick her out, but, you know, she's a stranger to everybody. And Boaz happens to come to the field that day. Isn't that how we always say it? You ever say, man, I had the biggest coincidence today. No, you didn't. You had a God appointment. God always knows what's going on. And God has Ruth there, and Boaz shows up, and he goes, I never saw her before. Who is that? And he must have seen something about her that he liked. And they said, oh, that's, you remember Naomi, that she came back? We were all excited about You know, when I was a kid and I'd hear that, I'd think about like a big city. How's the whole city know? Well, these are, these are small villages. I mean, it's a few hundred people. 
And so they kind of know, that's Elimelech's wife, Naomi, aren't you? Yes, I am. Oh, wow, welcome back. Who's this? Ruth, she married one of my boys, you know. So everybody knows about it. And they said, that's Ruth, you know, Naomi's daughter-in-law from Moab. She came back and he said, what's she doing out here? So, well, she's picking up grain with the women. He said, tell you what, you let her get up close to the harvesters. Let her get the best. In fact, every once in a while, y'all pull out a couple of clean stalks and throw them down. Let her pick that up. He's super nice to her. Lunch break comes. He says, Ruth, come over here and talk to me. Sit down beside me. What? Hold on a minute. Today, in, in Middle Eastern countries, especially Muslim ones, if a woman talks to a man, not her husband, in public, she can be put to death. I mean, that's part of their stuff. Can be. I'm not saying all do that. I'm just saying in some of the extreme places, they, they could do that. This is not looked on nicely for a man to openly say, hey, come sit by me and let's eat lunch together. Tell me about Naomi. What's going on? All that. And he goes, okay, before you leave, we'll make sure you got enough to take home to Naomi because I want to make sure she's taken care of. And Boaz is just the nicest guy in the world. He is, he is doing something culturally may not should do, but he is showing favor to Ruth. And when he does that, Ruth... Her reaction is not like, wow, thanks a lot. This is what she does. She falls down at his feet in a very humble position. And she says, why would you do this for me? Why would you help me this way? And she, it's verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground. He said, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. It's not a surprise. Everybody knew they came back. They'd heard the story. And how you left your father and mother and your native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, now catch this, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Remember that. We're going to see it again in just a minute. And she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, although I am not one of your servants. In other words, he's showing kindness to a stranger. This was in the Mosaic Law. They just didn't do it very much. But Boaz is a good man. He's a great man, and he does this for her. So, she goes home, and Naomi says, how'd it go? And said, wow, this guy, I met this guy named Boaz. She goes, well, he's one of our close relatives. He's not the closest, but he's right up there in the top five. In fact, he's in the top two of our redeemers. And he said, by the way, he gave me all this extra grain at the end to make sure you had enough to eat. And she says, I got a plan. And so we come to chapter three, oh, holy night, but it wasn't really holy. But it became holy. Naomi asked her to do something that really she shouldn't do. I mean, this is not something a young lady should do. Naomi is trying to accomplish God's will by human means. It does accomplish God's will, but Naomi didn't have to do this. I don't know how to say that. I just know that God sometimes uses bad things to accomplish his good things. Amen. So you see something bad going on. Well, I'll bring that out in just a second. God's in control. Hold on. What does he tell her to do? He tells her, listen, tonight you go back where he is, and after everybody's down, gone to sleep, after he's eaten, he drank, you go in, you sneak in, and you uncover his feet, and you lay down at his feet. 
Ruth, hey, she's new to the game. She don't know. She says, okay, that's how we do it. I'll do it. I don't know. She just obeys her mother-in-law. She does it. And in chapter 3, check this out. Um, it begins in verse 7. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Woo! And he said, who are you? She said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. There it is again. For you are a redeemer. Y'all remember what Jesus said when he looked on Jerusalem and began weeping? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you under my wing? It's a symbol of safety. It's a symbol of protection. It's a symbol of God taking us under his care. Listen, that does not mean that everything in your life is going to go good when God does that. That, that you'll never be sick or you'll always be wealthy. That, that's, that's, that's contrary to what God has promised us. He's promised us that he will accomplish his will in our life. He didn't promise it to be easy or hard. He just said, this is, this is, you, I'll take care of you. And so we have to trust him in the bad and praise him in the good, right? But there is really no bad. Because if God's wing is over, if anything gets to it, it has to come through God. So even what looks bad is good in God's economy. Because what is it doing? It's making us look more like Jesus and accomplishing God's will. Somebody help me and say amen. Amen. So that's what's happening. But I want you to think about what Boaz just did. The dude laid down belly full, satisfied. He's had enough wine to drink that he's gone a little tipsy to sleep. And he wakes up with a young woman that he has noticed before laying at his feet. And he says, who are you? What do you want? I want you to spread your wing over me. I want to take you back to Adam in the garden. He had three temptations and he failed all three of them. He had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh. He looked at the fruit and saw, man, that's delicious to eat. It make my flesh feel good. He looked at the lust of the eyes. It was beautiful to look at. And the pride of life, and if I eat it, I will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam broke all three. He failed in all three tests. And men became sinners. Now, fast forward thousands of years. And Jesus is in a wilderness. And he's fasted for 40 days, having neither drink nor food. I don't, I don't get how man go 40 days in a desert place without any water. But he does. And Satan shows up and says, hey, Jesus, <laughs> fancy meeting you here. You're in a body now. That's kind of odd. Now you're vulnerable and you haven't eaten in 40 days. Are you hungry? Since you are the son of God, just speak to that rock and it'll turn to loaf of bread and you can eat it. He said, nope, scripture says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. Oh, okay. So he passed the lust, the lust of the flesh. He said, well, come here. Let me show you something. He takes him up on a high mountain. He says, see all the kingdoms of the world? These are spiritual kingdoms, by the way. The prince of Persia and Greece we see in Daniel. He's showing all these fallen principalities and powers. And we'll all bow down to you, Jesus, as the God of gods, if you'll bow down to me. And Jesus said, you shall have no, no, ain't happening, no God before the true God. And he passes that lust of the eyes. And then he takes him on the high pinnacle of the temple. He says, hey, jump off. Angels will catch you. You'll float down and everybody will know you're the son of God, the pride of life. You can say, see, I told you I was him. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to take the stairs because you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And Jesus passed the test for us. 
so that he would be sufficient to die for our sin. Boaz passed the same three tests. Lust of the flesh. He are, we already know he liked her. Obviously, because tomorrow <laughs> he's going to get up and go buy the right to marry her. And he passes the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Obviously, something about her made him look twice. And the pride of life. Because he says, you have dealt kindly with me. After she says that, he says, you've dealt kindly with me. Because I'm an old dude and you could have went and picked a young guy. The pride of life. But he passes the test. And says, but I'm not going to give in to that now. But I will marry you. And he says, you lay down till morning. They get up early in the morning. says, here, take this stuff. Get out of here before anybody sees you. Because we don't want you to get a bad reputation. Tells his guys, don't you say a word to anybody that she was here. He protects her reputation after passing the test. What a symbol of Christ who passed the test, who died in our place, and who restores us even though we have a bad reputation. He gives us his righteousness, his goodness, his blessing in our life. Amen? Amen. Well, she goes home, and Naomi says, how'd it go? And she tells her, she says, then sit down and be still. He'll take care of this. In fact, look at that, that last verse in chapter 3. Wait, my daughter, till you see how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles the matter today. They're not going to stop until, he's not going to stop until he gets this done. It's kind of what Boaz said to her. If you go back and read what Boaz said, he said, you just rest a while, I'll take care of that tomorrow morning. And so he does. And in chapter 4, he goes out the city gates. He sees the closer redeemer, uh, the guy that could redeem the situation. And he says, hey, come here. I need to talk to you privately. I need a couple of witnesses. They come around. He says, you've heard about Naomi and Ruth, right? He goes, yeah. He said, well, you know, you're the redeemer. You're, you're the one supposed to buy them. You want to, get, you, want to, you want to buy their birthright? And he goes, Sure. And Boaz said, oh, okay, well, if you do, just don't forget these few little facts. You got to take care of Naomi the rest of your life. And you got to marry Ruth, and that means Naomi's going to be your mother-in-law. And you are be financially responsible with them forever. He went, yeah, it's not worth it. And Boaz says, good, it's worth it to me. I want to buy it from you. He says, okay. And they exchanged a sign of that. And Boaz, it was very costly. You see, the, the last point I'm making is Jesus paid it all. And he says, I'll buy that birthright. And he takes them in. And he blesses Naomi. He blesses Ruth. I've been joking about Naomi. She is a downer, but I probably made it worse than she was. But he buys all that back and he brings Ruth in. And as a result of that love relationship... A child is born who will have a child who will give, have a child that will be the king of Israel. By a Moabitess woman who shouldn't, her descendants shouldn't even be allowed the temple for ten generations. But in four generations, he's the king. From whom his kingship will never end. And Jesus comes and he's the ultimate king. Good night. Didn't know all that was in Ruth. I thought it was just a cool story about a young lady. Listen. We all need a qualified redeemer. There's not a man born that has not, or woman, that has not need, needed a qualified redeemer to save us out of this world of sin, out of this, out of this fallen condition and restore us. And the first thing we get when our redeemer restores us is an inheritance. 
Boaz had given Ruth a great inheritance. They're, they're going to be the progenitors of the king's line of Israel. But friend, I want you to understand, when Jesus saves you, you get an inheritance. Jesus says, the Bible says, that Jesus is our reward. We get a reward. We get an inheritance. And you know, you don't get your inheritance to the person dies right but Jesus died but not only did he die he rose again and became the lawyer that enforces the contract the will that he had made with God to inherit us and turn us into saints in Corinthians what we used to be we are not anymore for we are a new creation old things pass away all things become new I think we have cheapened heaven in a sense. And I'll tell you why. Because we think about streets of gold and mansions. And by the way, the Greek word for mansion is apartment. And it's, it's not that, you know, in my head it's this big southern plantation with a line of oaks going up to it. Hello, gone with the wind, right? Filmed in Charleston, by the way, parts of it. That's the plantation there. I've seen that, that line of oaks. It's in that movie. That's, it's an amazing sight. But no, it, it's a good place to live. I'm not saying the apartments are cheap. I'm just saying... It's an apartment. It's a place to stay in heaven. That's going to be great. And we say, oh, I can't wait to get there to see my mom, my dad, my cousin, my uncles, all those who died and went before me. No, man, when you get to heaven, you're going to want to see Jesus. You're going to fall at his feet. And when your relatives come, man, glad to see you. Glad to get here. Hold on a minute. I got to see Jesus first. And as the songwriter said, when we've been there 10,000 years, it'll be like we just begun. Because he is there. He is our reward. And he gives us that inheritance. Have we seen it yet? Nope. We go by the eyes of faith. But I'll tell you this. He gave us a down payment on our inheritance. What is the down payment for our inheritance? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. Ephesians. It says he has put the, given us a down payment. That God who created all things and worked all this and died for us lives inside you. Think about when the glory of God came into the temple in the Old Testament and they couldn't even go in because the glory of God was so great. The Shekinah was so awesome they couldn't even get in the tent. They couldn't even get into his presence. And if you walked in with unconfessed sin, it'd kill you. That God lives in you if you're a believer in Christ. And he walks with you. That, that inheritance is being held in a broken clay pot, which is our body. But he's going to redeem that body one day. So we will have an eternity with him. Because wherever he is, that's heaven. It don't matter if I got a mansion or an apartment or a street of gold or a street of asphalt. It don't matter. Heaven's so cool, gold is asphalt. I mean, just don't forget that. All the riches of this world mean nothing there. But Jesus is there, so it's everything. And as Paul said, having all things, possessing nothing. Because we have all things in Christ. And he's won all that. So we have an inheritance. We have a restoration. I was fallen. I was broken. I was a sinner. Now I'm a saint. I don't want to call myself that, but Jesus calls me that. I don't act saintly sometimes, but I am a saint. I am a redeemed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our Lord. He is our Savior. And so he's restored me to a place where I can come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, we also have an intimacy with God. To me, one of the strangest, I sometimes say it's the strangest thing ever said, and maybe I'd be wrong about that, but it's, in the, it's in, up there, it's in the top 10, is come boldly to the throne of grace in Hebrews. Wait a minute, that's like a kid going up to his parents and saying, you will buy this for me for Christmas. 
Yeah, I don't think so, Timmy. That's just not going to happen. You come demanding like that to me. God said, come boldly, throne of grace, and there you will receive help in times of trouble. In other words, bold doesn't mean arrogant. It means confidently. We come before God confidently because of our Redeemer, because of Jesus. And in Jesus' name, Father, we stand in need of you because we're powerless, we're helpless, we're hopeless. And you've given us this job to do, which we can't do ourselves, which is to tell the entire world, all the nations about you. Help us today to do that. But we waste our prayers on being blessed and being comfortable and being well. Friend, listen, you can be in perfect health and you're going to die. We need to pray that God would use us to bring the world to him. Because we have that intimacy with him. And he says, man, pray and I will give the world to Jesus. And you are a co-inheritor with Jesus. So that in eternity we are with him and all that he... It blows my mind. I can't even conceive of it. All because of our Redeemer, whom, of whom Boaz is a picture. Well, what can you do with it this week? First of all, in your darkest moments, stay faithful. Stay faithful. You, you're going to have dark moments. You're going to have dark times. Listen, I've been so dark, I just thought God wasn't there anymore, you know? I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there more than once. But He is there, and He always comes in, He always reminds us, I'm here. I'm here, but I'm doing something. You got to trust me. Stay faithful. Secondly, our redemption was costly. Please don't forget what it costs God to redeem you. Don't forget what it costs God to redeem you. And rejoice in that every morning. Just say thank you for that and live in that. Live in the power of that. And just remember this too, that redemption is the only way you can have joy in your heart. Naomi had been through a lot, Ruth had been through a lot, but a redeemer got them out of their misery and brought them into blessing. God has redeemed us and brought us into blessing. And he has promised us something that's coming. As we look to that inheritance, as we see our restored relationship, as we realize we have an intimacy with the creator of the world, that throne that, that law, the lost man has to fear, we walk up to and say, Daddy, Father... And lay our burdens at his feet. And he lifts us up and he helps us. Man, have joy. Father, in Jesus' name. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us. Only Christ, only our Redeemer could do all of this. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing the will of God. We thank you for loving the Father enough to obey His will. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus to die in our place on the cross by putting Him in a human body and making Him vulnerable. And that He would pass the test there in the wilderness. That He passed the test by going all the way through the cross. Not to it, but through it. He got on that cross. He died. He gave His life. And He rose again on the third day so that we would know He's real. And that the plan is enacted. The plan is in force. And that man can be saved. Lord, it's the greatest things ever happened. And we treat it like a, just another story or fairy tale. 
May we realize what a great work the Redeemer has done for our life. May we have joy in your presence. Lord, you said that when people are redeemed, they're joy in the presence of the angels of God. That just tells us that the joy is in you. That you're the one having joy. And in the presence of the angels of God, there's just joy all around. Lord, we don't have joy because we're not in the birthing room enough. We're not seeing people born into the kingdom enough. We're just doing the things that we've always done. We show up and think church is about coming here on a Sunday morning. It's not. We know it's not. It's about us being in the world. Telling a world that's dying and going to hell. Lord, even as our Sunday school lesson today talked about the light of the world. And in 2 Corinthians 4, you said, if, if the gospel is hid, it's hid those who are blinded. Our enemy has blinded their minds lest they see the glorious light of the gospel and believe. And you've given us this ministry of reconciliation, of going and giving the light of the gospel to a world. And so, it, Lord, the Holy Spirit has to touch their lives for them to see. But, Lord... You require us to go and give the message so that the Holy Spirit can work. May we be doing that. May we live in the light of your presence and may we share that light. As you said in Psalm, in your light we see light. We can't see the light of God unless we're in your light. We can't see light in our life without your light. And so God, we need you. We desperately need you. But we come to a God who sits on a throne boldly because of the grace of God. And you say, I can do exceeding abundantly beyond all you ask or think. Lord, may we think bigger and ask bigger, knowing that we will never ask enough or ask too much that you can't go beyond. And you will reveal your will to us. You'll, you'll guide us in our praying. You'll guide us in our actions. But Lord, may we not, not do what you called us to do just because we make an excuse why you can't do it because there's nothing you can't do. It may not be your will, but you'll tell us, well, that's just not my will. I'm not going to do that, but I will do this. And that we will be able to follow your will for our lives. Lord, as a church, you have made us one. As we, as we read in John 17, your prayer was that we'd be one as you and the Father are one, Lord Jesus. And that, that together we would accomplish the will of God. God, we see all this in Ruth. We see it unfolding as Boaz redeems her. And we, we start understanding what it is you did for us. And so, Lord, it's, it's no question that in Matthew, as Jesus is born, you point us back to Ruth and say, check her out. Look what happened there with Boaz and with Ruth. It's what I'm about to do for you. God, we were strangers and aliens outside the commonwealth. But now we're sons of God. Lord, may we be a grateful people, an obedient people. And may we do your will in this world. Their heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what God's doing in your life. But I know this. God wants you to know him. He knows you, but he wants you to know him. And the way you do that is you, like Ruth, you fall at his feet and say, Who am I that you would take notice of me? And you just say, I just like you. I, I, I want to save you. And when we open our lives and you spread your wing over us and you take us in, you protect us, 
You make us yours. We know that heaven's our home because your wing is over us. We're your children. We are, we're the people of your pasture. You are our shepherd. You take care of us and you guide us all the way to the end. So, Lord, we pray. I pray for those who don't know you, those who are not confident that they know you, that right now, the Holy Spirit, Lord, we, we ask you, send him to touch their heart and let them know they need Jesus. And that this day, this time, this moment, you would open their eyes to see that glorious truth and that they would pray and say, Jesus, take over my life. Become my Lord, my Savior. Take away my sin and give me your righteousness. And if you're listening to this and you hear me right now, if you do pray that prayer, if you do come to Christ, please don't keep it to yourself. Let me know, let somebody know that you've prayed and asked Christ to come into your life. I'm going to hang out a little bit after this, so I'll be here. Please come let me know. If you're a Christian, I pray that you just, every day, pray. And thank God for his salvation in your life. Father, we thank you for your love and generosity to us. That you give us more than we need so that we may have something to give to others. Just as Ruth had enough to give to her mother-in-law. So you give us more than we need so that we can give to others. That they might know the mercy and the grace of the Redeemer. God, help us in that. And help us to do that. Help us to be obedient like Ruth. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.